Morning. Uh, my name is David Sorn. I am the lead pastor here of Renovation Church. Morning to you. Hey, before we get into our Bible passage for this morning, uh, I just have two quick things I want to talk to you about. Uh, number one, in a minute, I just I want to say a bit more, too, about our Easter outreach. And then two, we've been taking a couple weeks to just roll out our brand new core values as a church to you. Uh, no need to be nervous. We're not taking the church in a different direction or anything. But w- what we wanted to do is just put more accurate wording to describe the direction that we've already been going the last few years. And so none of this should shock you or even mildly surprise you. And so last couple of weeks, uh, we rolled, or last week, we rolled out our first uh, two core values. And the first core value was we put God first. And then uh, the second core value uh, after that that we talked about was we pray the impossible. And so Today, we want to roll out a couple more core values to you. Uh, The third core value that we have is we know our faith thrives in community, but struggles without it. Uh, I think, you know, perhaps the most unique thing about Renovation Church. So when people come up to me and they say, what's different about Renovation Church? This is often the first thing that comes to mind for me, is that 80% of our people are in a house group every week, are in some sort of house group. That's amazing. By the way, in America, the national average for percent of people that are involved in some sort of group in their church is 22%. 80% of the people here are involved in a house group. That's a huge part of our DNA. We just said, you know what? We don't want to be, we're not going to be the typical American church where lots of times people just walk into a church and walk out of a church and they never know anyone. We want you to be known. Because we know if you are known, if you know other Christians, guess what? You grow in your faith because you have people in your life that can support you, challenge you, encourage you. It makes such a difference. So we know when you're in community, your faith is going to grow. So if you're not in a house group yet, by the way, sign up on the way out today in the lobby. Okay, another core value for you. We are disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Uh, This is who we want to be. This is why when someone comes to Christ at our church, the very first thing that happens is we put them immediately in an eight-week one-on-one discipleship program with another follower of Jesus. Because Jesus tells us in the Great Commission, he doesn't want us to go therefore and make believers. He wants us to go therefore and make disciples, followers of Jesus. And I don't want you to be a cul-de-sac on God's great commission highway. The gospel is to keep flowing through you so that you would be a Christian who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. Christianity is a movement, not just content to be consumed. Kind of wish I was preaching that message this morning, okay? Uh, This message is good too, okay. And then another one I want to bring to your attention today is this. We will not rest until every person in our city has heard the gospel. Church, this is our ambitious life goal of this church. So in the city of Blaine today, over 85% of people are not in a church. Over 85%. We want to reach them with the good news of Jesus. We want to find new and creative ways to share the gospel with them, whether it's in these walls or outside of these walls. This is why we're doing this enormous Easter egg hunt outreach. It's not because Easter egg hunts are really fun. At the end of the day, we want to reach people for Jesus. That's what this is about. We're doing seven services that day because it is wildly effective, and people absolutely will come. I know some of you, so many of you are new here, and you're going, is this really 
I mean, do we really need to do seven? We do, because it's going to happen. Those of you who have been here for a long time have seen it happen. In fact, some of the most amazing testimonies and salvation stories we've ever had in this church come out of this event, where people go, you know what, I'll just bring my kids to this egg hunt that's happened in Blaine, and we'll go to church Easter weekend, and bam, they are hit with the forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus, and it radically transforms their whole family. And so it's just an amazing evangelistic outreach. However, to be able to pull off something that large, it takes a lot of work from a lot of people, and we can't be a church of consumers, right? Because we're not a cruise ship, we're a rowboat. And so we need people to pick up oars and help make this happen. In fact, in order to do this, we need 116 additional volunteer slots out at the egg hunt to fill this out, to make it happen. So church services are here, as Patrick said, and then people go across the street to sunrise for the egg hunt. So we need people who are going to volunteer to say, yeah, we'll put out eggs that day, we'll check wristbands, we'll kind of direct traffic, so we'll put out street signs on the weekend. I would love for you to sign up for that. We need help. We, I mentioned this first service, I think we signed up like eight people. Seriously, not going to happen if we sign up eight people. I know your second service, so you're just a really wonderful, so it won't happen. <laughs> Listen, we want you to sign up. So you can sign up on your app in the Connect tab. Uh, you can sign up in the lobby. Find a way to serve. Even if you took Easter weekend and said, some of you can do this. You say, you know what? What if we just go to church Easter morning on, the, on that Sunday, but on Saturday, we'll just give our afternoon to it to just serve so people can meet Christ. What an awesome way to just spend your day. Or you could do that vice versa as well. We would love for you to do that because we will not rest until every person in our city has heard the gospel. That takes work, right? So labor with us for the Lord and for the gospel. Don't just come to be valued, come to add value. Okay, all right, let's get into the message. Okay, so we, as a church, we have been studying... Uh, the book of Luke in the Bible. Luke is one of four books in the Bible about the life, the teachings, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are currently in chapter 23 of the book of Luke. Uh, chapter 23 is basically about Good Friday, the day of Jesus's death. But before Jesus is crucified, he endures six very fast trials, if you can even call them that. In fact, I love charts. You love charts. And so... <laughs> We made you another chart this week. Take a look at this, and this will help you understand what's been happening contextually. These are the six trials of Jesus. If you even want to take a picture of this so you have it for your records, your notes, I encourage you to do that. If you're studying the Bible later and you want to come back, what were, what were all those trial things? Okay, so from the time Jesus is arrested, Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane, they usher him off first to go see Annas. Now, Annas is the former high priest. Annas questions Jesus, and he pretty quickly sends him off to the second trial, which is with his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the real high priest of the Jerusalem temple. And it's at Caiaphas's trial that this is where Peter's out in the courtyard and he denies Jesus. Uh, this is where they mock and begin to beat Jesus for the first time. And then after that, they wait till daybreak. So the third trial in front of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish high council, that take place, takes place very, very early in the morning on that Friday morning. Now the Sanhedrin, they look at Jesus and they say, oh, he's guilty. And so they decide they've got to usher him over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Now notice the first three trials are all in front of Jewish authorities, where the second three trials are all in front of the Roman authorities. And that happens because while the Sanhedrin 
can do just about anything they want, one of the things that they can't do is enforce the death penalty. And so that's why they've got to bring Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Well, Pilate, this is what we covered last week. Last week we did four and five. So Pilate looks at Jesus, says, I don't really think there's anything here deserving of the death penalty. So he sends him over to King Herod, who's also in town. King Herod is king of the region of Galilee, where Jesus lived and was from. King Herod also says, no, nothing really here deserving the death penalty. Sends him back to Pilate. This is all on Friday mornings. These are really quick. And now he's back in front of Pilate for the sixth trial, and that is what we're gonna study today. Okay, so everybody grab a Bible. Uh, There's Bibles in front of you, on the chair in front of you, uh, page 721. Uh, I said this last week, I know some of you weren't here last week, but we uh, we made a decision, we're not gonna put the main passage that we study on the screens anymore, because we really do want 100% of you, whether you bring your own Bible or use the one here, to have the word of God in front of you. That it would be on your lap, you're looking at it, you're referencing it, you're studying it, you're watching it come alive. So grab a Bible, page 721. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 23, so look for that big number uh, 23, and then you're gonna look for the small number 13, because we're gonna be on start today on verse 13. And Jesus is at Pilate, it's, it's actually not even nine o'clock in the morning on Good Friday yet, and here is what happens. So verse 13 says this. It says, Pilate, called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Now, we're going to see in a few minutes, let's just pause there for a minute. We're going to see in a few minutes that that's actually not going to work. But what's happening here? Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and Pilate's regathered all of the Jewish leadership. In fact, we're told he even brings the crowd back in. It's kind of like at the end of a court trial today, you know, everyone comes back in the courtroom, and the judge comes in one more time, and the bailiff for the last time says, all rise, here comes the verdict. And Pilate, again, he already did this in the third trial, and he's doing it again in the, or excuse me, in the fourth trial. He's doing it again in the sixth trial. He's saying, not guilty. But, this is verse 16, if you have it in front of you still. What else does he add? He says, well, here's the deal, though. I will punish him and then release him. And here's what Pilate is thinking. He's thinking, okay, I don't think Jesus is guilty, but I know these guys are not going to want to hear that, and so what if I come up with a compromise? He's thinking, okay, if I say to them, I will punish him, then maybe they're going to go, okay, you know what? I was hoping for an execution, but you know what? A brutal flogging, I'll take that as a second. Except it doesn't work, right? And they don't take that or accept that at all. So let's keep reading now. So we're on verse 18 in our passage. It says, but the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Okay, let's stop for a second because I want to make sense of who this Barabbas guy is. Okay, so the crowd, they're not having Pilate's compromise, right? And they begin to shout, what does it say? They begin to shout, away with this man. They won't even say his name. His holy and powerful name, they won't say it. And suddenly, the crowd starts to chant for another prisoner Barabbas, why? Now what's interesting here is 
the gospel author Luke leaves out a detail that the other three gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and John, include. Now, I don't know if Luke just thought, oh, my readers are going to know about this. Everybody knows about this. But for whatever reason, he doesn't include it. Here's what the other writers tell us. So I'm going to pull, I'll put it on the screen. From Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. It says, now, it was the governor's custom, that's Pilate, uh, at the festival, that's a Passover, which is happening right now, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. So in other words, every Passover, Pontius Pilate would say to the crowd, this is crazy, who do you want me to release from prison? And Pilate, who's extremely frustrated that the Jewish leadership wants to kill Jesus, he's extremely frustrated that they didn't take his first compromise just to have Jesus flogged, he sees yet another opportunity to save Jesus here. By the way, don't you feel like Pontius Pilate just gets a bad rap? Like he's trying everything he can to save Jesus. He can't believe that they didn't take his first compromise, so he offers a second one. In fact, uh, the gospel author John tells us that it was Pilate's idea to recommend that Jesus be released here. So look at John chapter 18. This is Pilate speaking. He says, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews, Jesus? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, I think Pilate just had to have been shell-shocked here. Like, he's probably thinking, okay, if Jesus is who these guys are saying he is in all their accusations, if, if Jesus is even 20% hostile to Rome, then if I recommend Jesus gets released right now, the crowd is going to love that. And they're totally going to say, okay, yeah, give us this Jesus guy back as part of your annual prisoner Passover release program or whatever it was called, right? <laughs> Except that's not what happens. Not at all. And so what happens instead? They start chanting and cheering for Barabbas. Pilate's probably thinking, okay, listen, I think they're going to take Jesus. And why would they take Barabbas? The gospel author Mark tells us that Barabbas was a notorious insurrectionist. An insurrectionist. You know, today, we probably actually wouldn't use the word insurrectionist. We'd actually probably use the word terrorist. He's someone who's inciting violence so that he and his group can get power. And what's fascinating historically about Barabbas is Barabbas is most likely condemned to be crucified. See, in Jewish law, murder received the death penalty and Barabbas had already been handed over to the Romans. For what? to be executed, because remember, only the Romans can execute. And so Barabbas's crucifixion was probably likely imminent. Now remember, when Jesus is actually crucified, he's crucified next to two others who are being crucified for what? For theft, a far lesser crime than murder, like Barabbas. And so Pilate's probably thinking, there's no way that the crowd is going to choose this notorious death row terrorist who just committed insurrection in their very city, we're told. There's no way they're going to choose him over this guy who seems to be fairly silent and meek, this Jesus. 
And yet, shockingly, the crowd begins to chant for Barabbas. Matthew actually lets us in on how that happened. Matthew 27, 20 says this. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. The leaders are inspiring the mob, and the mob begins to shout, and you know how mob rule works, right? Pilate starts to lose his battle. I think Pilate severely underestimated how evil religion can be when religion is run by rules and greed and hatred and not love, truth, and grace like it should be. Okay, let's keep reading and see what happens. So we, we left off at verse 20. It says, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, that's Barabbas, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And Jesus is going to be let out to be crucified now. And the bloodthirsty crowd gets their way. You know, I remember a few years ago, I was uh, reading through this same particular passage, and I was reading it for, I don't know, the seventh time or the tenth time. And as I'm reading it, the word of God just seemed to leap off the page. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's God's word, right? We say in Hebrews 4, it's living and it's active. And it's like the truth of this passage just hit me in the face like a ton of bricks. And this discovery that I had, it's not actually really a novel concept. It's actually the right reading of the text. You read any Bible commentary, they're going to say, yeah, so what the passage means. I had just never seen it before. And here's what I realized. Okay, Jesus Christ, the lover of souls, the healer of the sick, friend of sinners, the one who never sinned, is going to be killed. And Barabbas, the sinner, the one who was guilty, who had committed wrong after wrong, evil after evil, is going to be set free. And I'm sitting there, and I'm reading my Bible, and as I'm reading, I'm just shaking my head at that sinner, Barabbas. And then it just hit me. And I thought, I'm Barabbas. I'm, I'm Barabbas. Barabbas represents me. And you. That's the whole point of God sovereignly involving him in this story. I am a sinner, a messed up one, who deserves justice and death and God's holy punishment. And yet Jesus, who never sinned, died in my place when it was supposed to be me who died. 
And I was released. I was set free from the prison of my sin and death. Well, an innocent man died in my place. I'm Barabbas. And so are you. Can you see it? Can you see Barabbas in jail, on death row, sitting on a cold bench, maybe rubbing his hands together, thinking about what it's going to feel like to have nails pounded through his hands. And as he's sitting there, he hears the crowd down the road shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And he thinks, oh no, it's me. My time has come. And the tears start to roll down his face. And you know when you get to that point where it's usually not when we sin, but when we know that the right justice is coming for our sin, that Barabbas probably thought, oh, what I would give to go back in time and do things differently. But I can't save myself. And just then he hears the jingle of the jailer's keys and the hair stands back, stands up on the back of his neck. And he thinks, it's time. I'm going to die. I'm going to pay for my sins. And the jailer says, you're free to go. What? How? And the jailer would have said, yeah, there's some guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that's going to die instead of you. You're kind of trading places. He's going to die, and you've been set free. You're free to go. Can you see it? Can you see Barabbas then maybe an hour later just wandering the streets of Jerusalem, confused? And maybe he gets to the edge of town and he looks out and he sees a crowd and there's Jesus of Nazareth carrying a cross. Surely Barabbas would have at least known about it. The whole city knew about it, right? I mean, goodness, the sky turns dark halfway through the crucifixion of Jesus. What would you think if you were Barabbas? Barabbas would have literally thought, that man is dying my death. He is carrying my cross. I should have died. Jesus is dying in my place. My friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. It's not just that Jesus died, it's that Jesus died in my place when it should have been me. And God so beautifully portrays that for us in this passage. I'm Barabbas. I'm that vile sinner who deserved death. And Jesus traded places with me. And it's a full trade, right? Because on the cross, Jesus was bearing Barabbas's guilt and shame, the disgrace and the death that Barabbas deserved. Jesus gets it. 
And Barabbas receives the release and the freedom and the life that Jesus deserved for his innocence. And when you believe in Jesus, Christians, when you believed in Jesus Christ, he got your guilt and your shame, and we get set free. Set free from the penalty of sin and death. Set free from those iron chains of sin that were just holding us down. And in our freedom, God treats us like we never did all those things that you and I did. And I hope that this forgiveness of you, or for some of you, his offer of it, I hope to you it feels unfathomable as it would have felt, just as unfathomable as it would have felt to Barabbas, who is shocked and dazed walking around the streets of Jerusalem because honestly, he deserved to die. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus is unfathomable. The gospel is Jesus in the place of Barabbas. It's Jesus dying for that sinner, David Soren. It's Jesus dying for you, even though he knows all of the lies, all of the secrets that nobody else even knows about you. See, it is that kind of unfathomable grace and love that changes the world. He, this, this is exactly why the leaders are okay with choosing Barabbas over Jesus. I'm sure they know Barabbas is dangerous, no doubt. But we know how to stop people like Barabbas, right? You just get more weapons, bigger army, just more force. But they're thinking, how do you stop Jesus? How do you stop someone who has no home, no money, no weapons, no army, no political power whatsoever, and yet everywhere he goes, he changes the hearts and minds of almost everyone. How do you stop that? They're not afraid of Barabbas. They can control Barabbas. But Jesus was starting something they were terrified they could not control. So they think, we have got to, we have got to, we have got to kill him. And we need to bury him, and that is the last we will ever hear from Jesus. It is over. But they knew nothing but just play right into God's hand. And God has them trade for Barabbas so he could show all of us his unfathomable grace. And God even lets them sacrifice his son as a payment for our sins. And they put Jesus behind the rock. But it's okay. Because no tomb can hold the son of God. And three days later, he rises in victory proving to you that his payment for your sin was accepted. And it worked. This is the grace of God. Have you accepted that payment? That is the great question in front of every single human being. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, loved you so much that he was willing to be traded for you, to die in your place, and to give you forgiveness, freedom from sin, and eternal life in heaven. And all you need to do, you don't, Barabbas didn't say, well, see, look, I got my life together. I've been really, I've been on good behavior in prison. He didn't do anything. It's the grace of God. 
All you need to do is believe, walk out in it. Say, I believe. I believe you died for me. And because you died for me, I want to live for you. I want that forgiveness. I want you in my life because you get to have a relationship with Jesus when you believe this. An eternal life in heaven, not hell, the justice we deserve for our sins. But it comes through faith, through making that decision to believe and follow. So if you've never made that decision before, I honestly, make it today. Make it right now. Say, yeah, I believe that you died for me. I want to follow you. That's what forgives you. That's what makes you right with God. In fact, if you need to make that decision today, let's just do it now. But just everybody in the room, would you just close your eyes? Would you maybe just bow your head just for a minute? If you've never made that decision before, I want to give you the chance to be forgiven, to be made right with him. If you want to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place and to let him set you free to forgive you, you can do that today. In fact, in just a second, what I'm going to ask you to do is just to respond by just raising your hand in the air. This is what allows God to come into your life, to make you right, grant you eternal life in heaven. It is the big question of life. Will you believe and let him trade places with you? And so if you need to do that, and you know I, you, just, you need to be forgiven, you need to make him the king of your life, to accept that trade. What I want you to do now is just to raise your hand in the air and say, that's me, I need that. I wanna be forgiven, I wanna follow him. If that's you, would you just raise your hand, amen. Amen. Anyone else? All right. Let me give you another five seconds or so. If you, if you need to make that decision to say, I need it, I just, I need to be forgiven. I, I, I can't do it on my own. I'm never going to be good enough to believe that he died for you. Would you just raise your hand in the air? All right. For those of you that raised your hand, I want, I want to pray with you the Bible says that when you make this key decision in your life, that we believe in our hearts, we confess with our mouths. And so I'm just going to pray a prayer. And I want you to just repeat it out loud after me, but from your heart. And you can say it out loud whether you just raised your hand for the first time or you've been a follower of Jesus for much of your life. Would you just repeat this out loud after me? Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. Amen. As everybody just has their eyes closed for one more minute, for those of you that, that raised your hand, uh, I believe you just made the most important decision of your life. And you don't want to make a huge decision and then just kind of go on with your life as normal. You want to know, okay, but what do I do now that I want to believe and follow this Jesus? And so here's what we're going to do. In just a second, I'm going to pray uh, just to wrap up the message and then our band will come back on for a final worship song. And as I pray, as everyone kind of has their eyes closed, I want you to just sneak out of your row 
and head out into the lobby. Our follow-up team will see you there, and I'll come right out right after that, and I will meet you out there. And what I want to do is I want to just give you some really important resources and some next steps so you know what to do next. Because again, you don't want to raise your hand and say, I'm doing this, and then not know what to do. So I want you to sneak out for a couple of minutes, and then you'll be able to sneak back into your seat in a few minutes. But really critical that you do that. If you're from this church, and your friend or your family member just raised their hand, I want you to grab them by the arm and go out there with them as well. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so let me, let me pray, and as I pray, uh, you can head out, and I'll meet you out there in a second. All right, I'll pray. You can go. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this morning. God, thank you that you just show us your gospel, your good news so powerfully in this passage that we, it's us. We're Barabbas. We're the sinner who deserved death, and yet you took it for us. Oh, Lord, we're just in awe of that, and we pray now as we sing this last song about how you rescued us, Lord, would we just sing it from our hearts? Would we just praise you for your unfathomable grace? It's in your name we pray. Amen.